Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. On this program, as the name suggests, we talk about core principles, and those are things that are true and essential and unchanging. So today we're talking about the core principle that the University of Kentucky Wildcats are the greatest basketball program of all time, as the legendary Marquette head coach and CBS broadcaster Al McGuire once observed about the tradition of Kentucky greatness, quote, they had it before you, they had it during you, and they will have it when you're gone, unquote. Now, a man who has observed and chronicled Kentucky greatness for over two decades as the voice of the Wildcats is Tom Leach, and I am truly honored to welcome him today as my guest. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Now, it happens that this program is broadcast on the Super Talk network of radio stations here in western Kentucky, and they also carry broadcasts of Kentucky games. So I know listeners are going to be delighted at this opportunity to learn some insights from you. I'd like to start, uh, before we get into your book, about your background and the path that led you to where you are now. I uh, started working in radio when I was 16. Um, I was a high school junior. It was at uh, my hometown. I grew up in Paris, about a half hour north of Lexington, a uh, small town that uh, had a small station there that did high school sports. So I got a job when I was 16 working on the high school football broadcasts, keeping stats, and then I would do a report at halftime and at the end of the game. And then from there, uh, got a, into uh, doing the play-by-play -play by the second season and uh, then was working part-time at the radio station all the way through college just to do a little bit of everything uh, like you would do at a small station, or you, at least you did back then. Um, so, you know, news and being a disc jockey and probably even a little sales at times. Uh, but always, for me, the passion was doing play-by-play. -play. And so I would just look for as many opportunities to get to do that as I could. And then I stayed there through college. My first full-time job out of college was uh, doing high school games and other things for a uh, station in Mount Sterling. And then I came to work in Lexington as a news reporter in 84 at uh, WVLK, which was then the flagship station for the University of Kentucky Network. And my thought was to get on that team and then uh, hopefully be able to, to move up the ladder uh, by being on that that team, and fortunately, it, uh, the plan worked out, and uh, got a chance to start doing Kentucky football games in '97, and uh, added basketball four seasons later, and fortunately, have been able to hang on to both jobs. Well, it's it's been fortunate for us listeners too. Honestly, uh, you Thank and you. your partner Mike Pratt have been great to listen to. I drive across the country a lot during the winter. Uh, to go skiing out west, and I'm always thankful for the satellite radio that they have your broadcasts on there as well. Now, you and Mike Pratt published a book together about your first 20 seasons. Uh, it's called Kentucky Basketball, Two Decades Behind the Scenes. And listeners, it is exactly the treasure trove that it sounds like it would be. So today, I'm going to want to ask you about some of those memories. Uh, could you tell us 
what motivated you and Mike to put this into book form? It was Mike's idea, really. Um, we uh, It was after the plug was pulled on the 2020 season uh, because of the pandemic. And that summer, Mike said, you know, that was kind of an unusual season. And we're coming up on 20 years, uh, he and I doing this. He said, we ought to uh, think about doing a book. And so we had a couple of meetings to kind of hash out what it might look like. And then uh, uh, then it was just a matter of, at that point, uh, partnering with a, a publisher, which we did, and then um, setting about to compile the book, which amounted to uh, Mike and I doing a series of recording sessions each season at a time. So we just took them chronologically and went back uh, and kind of relived each of those seasons and had a conversation about uh, our memories and thoughts about those teams and players and seasons. And then um, each chapter, each season was its own chapter and its own file of recording. And then uh, my wife actually uh, transcribed all those conversations. And then that ended up being our, uh, our book, really. It was, it was kind of written like a conversation. And um, so hopefully for readers, it's kind of like sitting down there, like if you were sitting at the table with us as we were uh, discussing those seasons. And so that's how it, it came about. I'm glad Mike had the idea. Actually, it was fun to go back and, you know, look back at those seasons and kind of reflect on memories and what ifs and players and fun moments and all of that. And then we added a few more chapters of, you know, favorite characters that we've encountered in our time and, you know, a, a chapter about lists, different, uh, you know, favorite arenas, favorite dining spots, all those kinds of things. And I think we had a chapter about uh, how Mike ended up uh, coming to UK and uh, some good, he has some great stories from his playing days, playing for Coach Ruff. So we worked in some of those. It was just a, it was a really fun project. It just took a little time to uh, go through all those seasons. Yes. And it does uh, work as you described it. Uh, I can hear your voices since I listen to you so often. Uh, and so when I was reading it, I was hearing you guys talk rather than my internal well, voice. So that's good. And of course, with the added chapters about the things you mentioned, it occurs to me that sports people can never avoid talking about food. So that had to be. Oh, no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you travel a lot. You, uh, you know, you find those, you you know, we all like to find those uh, unique places, something that's not, you know, a chain, something that's, you know, a unique local place. And then you have, you know, everything's in enhanced by the story associated with it. If you go on a, a trip or go to a, you know, eat someplace or whatever, there's always, if there's a good story associated with it or some fun memories, then that enhances the whole experience. Okay. You're at dinner with Mike. Who's the first one to reach for the check? Well, we don't have to worry about that because, most of the time because we're uh we're working so uh it's uh, an expense it's expensed so uh, okay so all of these <laughs> conversations covered. that we hear on the broadcasts <laughs> and usually these are the espn guys that are like uh, you never pick up the check jimmy dykes whatever <laughs> yeah well they're they're the espn's picking up the check they're like us but That's right. uh you know if we're if if we're, if we're in the summer uh i think it's probably uh, about you know we'll, we'll both reach for it and then uh kind of uh figure it out but uh yeah it's uh we it's been a you know a great uh run with with mike and then our our producer slash engineers kind of jim barnhart who uh 
who uh, kind of keeps us on the air and uh, and uh, keeps us to hit all the uh, different uh, you know promotional announcements and things we have to hit. And so the three of us uh, enjoy you know being together, traveling together, and so uh, we've had a lot of good times. That's a blessing. Well, let's dive right into a few of the moments that uh, you experienced. I'm picking out some highlights uh, and moments that struck me in the book, starting right with the 2001-2002 season. You guys were calling for an unusual season and a team that people may remember under Coach Smith that was nicknamed Team Turmoil. And we start with the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers coming into Rupp and beating our Wildcats. What were you feeling right as you start? And this is what's happening. Well, that's... You know, that's our first game together doing this. So you'd like to start with, you know, something more memorable than a home loss. Uh, uh, The the two things I remember, I remember Patrick Sparks, who later became a Wildcat. Uh, When I went back and looked at the box score, we were doing these chapters. We would go back and look at uh, box scores of some games. And uh, Patrick was one of those guys that uh, could have an impact on the game, even if he wasn't scoring a lot. And he didn't score nearly as much as I uh, thought he did in, uh, in my memory, but I think that's because he still had a tremendous impact on the game uh, as a point guard for Western. And so that was uh, one thing that sticks out. And then just the fact that, you know, I think that sh- should have given us a, a sign right out of the box that maybe this season wasn't going to go the way everybody expected because, uh, you had Prince and Bogans, two great players there, and um, for whatever reason, it uh, you know as well as it clicked the next season, it didn't click that season. And uh, you know, one season that was uh, definitely where they underperformed in '02, it was just the opposite the next year, and it just happens that way sometimes. But I think that first game was probably a an indication of where '02 ultimately would end up. Yes, and that following season, really, I think was the one that Tubby had his most talented team, if you discount Patino's recruits that were left in the 98 champion season. And they were on track, I thought, to win it all. But they encountered in the regionals in the tournament a young man at Marquette named Dwayne Wade, and he picked that night to become the Dwayne Wade. What was that like in person? Yeah, uh, you know, he – we saw in the NBA what he he would become. I mean, he was a really good college player, but uh, I don't think he was uh, viewed in in the uh, as being the kind of player he would ultimately become in the NBA. And he kind of showed us what was coming that day against Kentucky. But, you know, that season was a little like this most recent one for Kentucky in that in the middle of middle to about two thirds of the way through the season, Kentucky was the best team in the country. Yes, sir. Uh, they beat Florida. Well, Florida had just gone to number one in that 03 season, and they came into Rupp Arena the next night after moving to the top of the polls, and Kentucky just beat them uh, unmercifully. It was a 15-point margin, and, and uh, it felt like more like a 30-point margin. But then Keith Bogans gets hurt. Like, this team had an issue with injuries towards the end of the year, and they got their guys back, but they, they didn't seem ever to be the same. And Keith... Uh, hurt his ankle, rolled his ankle in that uh, Sweet 16 win over Wisconsin. And so he tried to play against Marquette in the Elite Eight game and just couldn't couldn't go. And if Keith Bogans is at full strength, maybe he helps control Dwayne Wade a little bit. And if so, maybe Kentucky, you know, goes on to win a national title that year. You just, you know, you do have to have some uh, some good breaks along the way sometimes too. Yes. 
And I think the comparison between Bogans and uh, Ty Ty Washington is appropriate. Uh, I don't think Kentucky ever recovered from his injury. And, uh, you know, he was the only guy to out-rebound Oscar in a game, and he was the only guy to out-assist Severe. Uh, Ty Ty is going to be a great NBA player. And uh, when he got injured, he uh, it just really set us back this year. But getting back to uh, those earlier years with you and Mike, you all got to witness what uh, Michigan State had set up with Kentucky called the Basket Bowl at Ford Field in Detroit. What kind of experience was that? Uh, the first thing I always remember is it looked like the world's largest wedding reception because you uh, that was the, the that game in December of 03 was the test run for how they run final fours now in the domes where they used to put the court up against some of the, the hard uh, in, you know, seats that were set in place. So they would configure the arena for maybe 40 or 50,000 fans. And there were, you know, the court would be pushed up against some of the existing seats. Well, what they wanted to do was put the court in the, what would be essentially the middle of the football field and be able to sell out the entire arena. And so that's what they do now. And that was the test run for doing that. So they had the court set at basically where you would do the coin toss at Ford Field for a football game. And then they just had a, a hundreds of white folding chairs uh, that were seated just on a you know flat, flat around the court, which was an elevated court. Uh, so two, two or three steps up to get up to the court. And then you had all of these white chairs. That's why I said it looked like the world's largest wedding reception. And so, you know, now they have a, an elevation that uh, goes up on those seats that uh, are around the court. They're not, it's not a great viewing experience, but at least it's better than when they were all flat because at that game, if you were about four or five rows off the, off, uh, the court, you know, you were probably watching it on the Jumbotron because you couldn't see anything because everybody was at the same elevation. Um, and then from where uh, our broadcast spot, like at a Final Four now, with that circumstance, we would be, uh, our broadcast spot would be right there next to the court at least. Nice. Um, so it, hit, it would kind of hit you about eye level. For that game, we were broadcasting from the football press box. So on that Kentucky team, there was six foot one inch Cliff Hawkins and seven foot three inch Shigari Aline. And from where we were, they were looked like the same player. Wow, uh, we were so far away. So it's the only basketball game I have ever called through binoculars. <laughs> well, now in your book, uh, both Mike Pratt and you, Tom Leach, highlight uh, one of my all-time favorite players, Mr. Chuck Hayes, and you yeah. reflect that he was glue for that team. And I remember appreciating his work and thinking that he was just the toughest guy out there. In fact, in our most recent season, uh, you know, I I confess. I have a man crush on Oscar Shibway. I love him, and uh, I'm not alone. Uh, he reminded me most of Chuck Hayes, and uh, yeah, I can see that with with both Chuck and uh, you already mentioned Patrick Sparks on the the team that finished the uh, 2005 season. That had to be a lot of fun covering that. I remember highlights like uh, the Louisville. Uh, finale and uh, the Michigan State finale, it was always just like, how is this going to turn out? And uh, what, what was that like? Guys like Chuck and, and Patrick were great, what I would call winners. I mean, they 
they were tremendous competitors and they would do whatever it took to try to win a game for their team. And, um, you know, you saw that with uh, Chuck game in and game out. You saw it with Patrick making that shot down in Texas that sent the game to an overtime against Michigan State. And um, Chuck had uh, foul trouble in that game. And uh, Kentucky was up four, I believe. And uh, Chuck was uh, didn't start the overtime because of the four fouls. So they, were, they had him at the scorer's table ready to check in. And Michigan State misses four shots, three shots in a row. Finally, the fourth shot goes in for a three-pointer, cut the lead to one. I've always thought if, if Chuck is in that game, he finds his way to get that one of those rebounds on one of those previous three misses, and Kentucky has the ball up four with two minutes to go, probably wins. So, it, uh, again, just a, a tough break for that team. But, you know, I, I have a memory of Chuck with a tear streaming down his face on senior night. I remember, I think I had this item in the book that uh, Tubby had told me in one of our pregame interviews that uh, season that people don't understand how Chuck covers for everybody else. He is such a smart player. He covers up other guys' mistakes, and they people won't notice that until he's gone, and that was certainly the case. Yes. Now, were you surprised, Tom Leach, when Coach Orlando Tubby Smith – departed Kentucky and were you also were you surprised or not when the hiring authorities at Kentucky got Billy Clyde Gillespie as his replacement well as far as Tubby leaving yeah he just um, he, he he didn't seem he was as you know as happy at that point it was, you know they I think the recruiting landscape had changed in a way that uh he wasn't uh, comfortable at that time, maybe adapting to. And so, uh, and then um, he uh, had, you know, great teams there in 03, 04, 05, could have gone, could have easily gone to three straight final fours. And, um, you know, so you, you, they missed a window of opportunity there. And then 06 and 07, uh, those teams, for whatever reason, never seemed to click, even though they had talented players on the team. So it wasn't a surprise that he left. It was just, uh, you know, a, a, I wasn't predicting it or anything at the time, but I just remember not being surprised when he uh, took the opportunity to kind of just get a fresh start somewhere. And uh, this is a job that can wear on you for sure. Uh, There's a lot of pressure. And then, uh, you know, with with, uh, Billy, I think their first target was another Billy, Billy Donovan. And I think uh, the administration was probably misled uh, in terms of uh, how – the chance they had to, to get Coach Donovan. I think they really thought that he was going to take the job. And I, I really don't think he ever was going to come back and coach against Rick Pitino. I think that because of Billy and Rick's relationship, I just don't think Billy was ever going to do that. And uh, ultimately, he decided to, to stay put. And so uh, at that point, then, you know, they'd kind of gone all in on, on Billy, I think. And um, then you're kind of scrambling a little bit to uh, get your guy. And Billy Gillespie has a great year with AM. They come into Rupp Arena. They uh, beat Louisville in a great game. Uh, you know, uh, Billy's so passionate about basketball. It uh, looked like, you know, it could be a, a, a good fit for Kentucky. Obviously, it didn't work out. But uh, it was just kind of the way the circumstances played out that um, he, he kind of got hot at the time when the, you know, they were – they, they missed out on the guy they thought they were going to get. And then you're kind of 
you know, okay, you know, at that point, you don't want to get a, you, you don't want to get turned down a second time. So you want to find somebody that you know really wants the job. And um, sometimes that doesn't work out. It obviously didn't there. I remember always thinking that, of course, I wanted the best for Coach Gillespie as a person, but I felt like he lacked balance in his life. He was totally, probably true. totally committed, but perhaps uh, without other balance in he, his life. He was just not comfortable in the in the fishbowl that is that you're in when you're the coach at Kentucky. Yes, and um, he he could never get comfortable with that. That was always always going to be a bad fit, unfortunately. We noticed that uh, just as fans watching the interviews, I remember the notorious uh, Janine Edwards. That's a really stupid question that, that just was so pointless. I, uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll keep our reflections about the Gillespie era brief. uh, But I, uh, I did want to ask you about one thing that happened during that time, the tornado game in Atlanta. Yeah, that was uh, bizarre because uh, we were the, our pregame show for, UK games starts 90 minutes before tip off. And that was the late game on Thursday. So I think let's say tip off was scheduled for nine, at nine o'clock. And so the pregame show was going to start at seven 30. And so Mike and I, uh, our role in that doesn't kick in until about the last 20 minutes of the pregame show. And what, when that time came, the game was still going on. I think they ended up going to overtime. So we actually ended up calling a little bit of the Mississippi State Alabama game, and because of doing that, we weren't, you know, back in the media room hearing about what was happening outside. So we were really oblivious to what was happening. And then they finally, you know, stopped the game, and the game ends, and uh, they uh, you could tell something's going on. And uh, obviously, they never started the next game between Kentucky and Georgia, and. Uh, at some point in there, there was a, a TV monitor at our broadcast spot where we could punch it up to a certain channel and get statistics uh, on the screen. But you could also get the local Atlanta stations. And so during a commercial break, I punched it over to one of the local Atlanta stations and we could see the news reports then about uh, the tornado and had a little better understanding of what was going on because we were hearing a little bit from you know our producer back in Lexington during breaks about what he was hearing. But these were the people on the ground there in Atlanta. And you got a sense pretty quickly of how, you know, uh, dire the situation was. And um, so, you know, it was, uh, you know, it could have been a lot worse, obviously, if the uh, roof had crashed in on the dome or something like that. So um, fortunately, uh, you know, or if that game had not gone to overtime and a lot of fans would have been pouring out of the arena right about the time the tornado was going through downtown Atlanta. So, uh, you know, there was, they did one of those SEC story uh, documentary pieces about that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of events conspired to, to make it not as bad as it could have been, but, uh, strange. And then the next day, you know, doing the game at Georgia tech, not, you know, when we went to bed that night, we didn't know what was going to happen. And then wake up the next morning and find out, you know, there's a game at noon at Georgia tech. And, um, and then, uh, Kentucky ends up losing a, a tight game in overtime that brought the season to an end. So it was just a, a strange day all the way around. Now, listeners, you can tell that you get a lot of great, valuable firsthand accounts from Tom Leach and from Mike Pratt in uh, this book, Kentucky Basketball, Two Decades Behind the Scenes. I highly recommend you buy it for yourself, for all the fans in your life. We're getting now to the Calipari era. And Tom Leach, I'm going to say that I think you and Mike did 
a phenomenal job. Maybe the best part of the book for me was how you gave us the insight into the hiring event and the process for Coach John Calipari. So we won't discuss that. I'll leave that for folks to read in the book, but thumbs up. That was really insightful and uh, took me where I had no idea of all the things that uh, were surrounding that. Yep. Uh, that ended up being, a, uh, I think, a, a really interesting chapter for fans, I'm sure, to read because you got a lot of insight from Mike because he was in the meetings uh, when they uh, had the first hire and they hired Gillespie. Mitch took the approach of, uh, I think they used a, a search firm to help vet out candidates, and that's typically the, the way administrators do it. And uh, after uh, it didn't work out with Billy, uh, Mitch made a shrewd move. Uh, he and, and Dr. Lee Todd, who was the school president at the time, and brought Mike Pratt into the fold. Mike knows everybody. He knows he knows the guys with the search firms. He knows you know coaches and friends of coaches, and so they used Mike as the guy who could help them vet out some things. Okay, well this guy, you know, is he really interested? And uh, or is he just trying to string us along to get a better contract where he is? And Mike could be the guy that could help them uh, get a lot of that intel. Uh, and they could keep their circle very tight, uh, which is hard to do when you're trying to hire a basketball coach at Kentucky. And so Mike was a, a tremendous asset to, uh, I'm sure Mitch and Dr. Todd would say this, uh, to them in, uh, in that process. And, uh, you know, he didn't tell me anything. He, he, he respected all the confidences. But it was, you know, some of the stuff I didn't, didn't even uh, know all of when we were uh, doing the interview for the book. So there's a, 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 some good insight into you know, kind of how it how it happens, how it comes about when you're hiring a coach at Kentucky. So do buy the book, listeners. Uh, it is rich with things that you'd be interested to know. Now, Tom Leach, I wanted to ask you if you had a similar feeling as fans like myself. When Calipari brought a lot of his recruits that were going uh, with him, like uh, Cousins and Wall, uh, just from Big Blue Madness, the first time we see the John Wall dance and we're introduced to this character of Boogie, I felt like Kentucky is back. Uh, what were you yes. feeling at the time? Yeah, I think for me the moment was really the uh, Carolina game that uh, came along uh, early in that season, and uh, Kentucky got to uh, got Carolina uh, on the schedule, and they uh, won a close game, and uh, there was a they had a run of like twenty zero at some point. And Rupp Arena was just about the felt like the roof was about to blow off. It it just felt it was a big game, big name opponent, Kentucky, Carolina. Rupp is rocking, and you felt like okay, Kentucky's basketball is back where it's supposed to be. And um, you know that was a great team. You know they went cold, unfortunately, at the the worst possible moment, and uh, lost in that Elite Eight game. I think they. I think that was every bit as good as the 2012 championship team, that group in, in 2010. Indeed. But now let's talk about the experience you had calling a national championship. Yeah, you know, when you're doing this job for the University of Kentucky basketball program, you you know expect that you'll get to do some Final Fours and, and, uh, and hopefully get to call a championship to get in that club as the announcer. Uh, Claude Sullivan had four of them. Uh, Kay Wood had a couple. Uh, Ralph Hacker had a couple and, um, you know, you, uh, figure that's realistic hope that uh, that's going to happen. And then, uh, we started in 02 and Kentucky had some teams that were good enough to get to final fours and it never happened. And so finally in 11, it does. So it was just a great thrill to work a final four, 
But then, you know, in the championship day in 2012, they've made it to the championship game finally. And, you know, felt pretty optimistic about their chances of winning the title. So, you know, you're, you're just, it's, it's a little bit of a different game. Uh, just from the standpoint, I've always told people, if, they, if the team you're following wins it uh, in a championship game like that, whatever you say is going to have a long afterlife. You know, it'll get played back a lot um, by, you know, the, the local fans and whatever. So the first thing you want to do is, you know, not mess up the score or, or flub a line or something. And, you know, Al Michaels kind of spoiled it for everybody. You know, for, do you believe in miracles? I mean, you know, <laughs> if you can come up with that kind of line, that's great. But the main thing is just don't flub it up. So, you know, I was just, you know, thinking about making sure as the game wound down, stay focused here. Don't get, you know, don't kind of, uh, you know, get caught up in the, in the uh, emotion of the moment. Make sure that, you know, you're getting the score right and, uh, you know, all the players right and all of those things. Uh, so just, you know, that felt a little different, but it was really nice to to kind of uh, be in the uh, the club at that point. I got a text from Ralph Hacker uh, saying, welcome to the club. And so that was uh, really, you know, a memorable night down in New Orleans. Very good and very professional. Well done. Well, uh, Tom Leach, the only Final Four game that this particular fan has ever been to in person was in Indianapolis in 2015 when our team was oh. coming in 38-0. and zero. Do you think I took a little abuse as a jinx for the team? But uh, it well, was, I, You know, you get that as an announcer, you know, if you mention that the guys get 10 straight free throws and then he misses. But uh, I'll let you off the hook. It's the players and the coaches that decide the game. It's not what fan is there or what fan isn't there or what any broadcaster says. It's the players and the coaches there uh, on the court that uh, that decided. That was a, you know, I, I don't know that anybody's over that. Uh, that's that's a lot. You know, the, at least the 92 Duke game, Kentucky was a tremendous underdog, and so they really overachieved to be in that spot. To, to have a chance to win that game. And it's remembered as one of the all-time epic games. And so maybe you take a little bit of consolation in, in that if you're a Kentucky fan. Whereas in 15, it just, you know, it, and, I, and I bet you Cal, in his heart of hearts, just that when he thinks about it a lot, that uh, you never put that one away. When, you know, you know if you play that game, you know, 10 times, Kentucky's probably going to win at least eight, I think. Yes. And, um, um, you know, it's just uh, – uh, you know, that was a, a great team and then a position to, you know, if they beat Wisconsin, I think they would have completed a 40 and 0 season. They, you know, Wisconsin was the one team, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, I didn't want to see them play just because. Kaminsky uh, and Decker. They, they were good. They were tall. So they were a, a good matchup for Kentucky's team. And Kentucky, they had already played Kentucky. So number, number one, they, they had a good, you know, understanding of, Cal system and some of the players who were out there that they had played against the year before. And they had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because they were the two seed knocked out by the eight seed Kentucky the year before in the final four. So you had just some extra baggage, extra X factors in that game that, you know, if you, if your team is the one that's trying to complete a, a season like Kentucky was, you just assume not to have that extra, those extra factors coming into play. And uh, unfortunately they did. So true. And of course, the Harrisons were on their radar as we must end their career uh, after what yeah. the Harrisons did to them the year before. And yeah. it was so important, I think, for Kentucky basketball that the Harrisons came back. That was huge. But, and, you know, in fairness to that team, you know, the, uh, 
Kentucky had great luck with injuries the first part of Cal's tenure. They had some bad luck in 14. They lost Willie Cauley-Stein in the Sweet 16 game. He could have been just the ticket they needed to beat UConn, I think. And then uh, in 15, they lost Alex Poitras early in the year. And so they had plenty of time to overcome losing him. But I always thought in that particular matchup, Poitras would have been a great guy to be able to put on Decker part of that game. Yes, So sometimes, you know, good breaks, bad breaks uh, play a factor in it too. Well, now as we wrap up and get to the more recent seasons, if you have a few more minutes to spare with me, I wanted to ask you uh, some more general questions about changes in the NCAA. Uh, We have now a wide open transfer portal. We have the ability for players to earn money on name, image, and likeness. From a fan's perspective, I recognize how this has made some changes to Calipari's approach to building a team. What do you see as an insider, Tom Leach, about these changes that maybe we fans miss or maybe we misunderstand? Well, I, I don't know that you miss or misunderstand anything. It's just it is a big uh, sea change because uh, I, I've, I remember thinking when they first implemented the uh, transfer change, which I think is is good. I mean, if you coaches can leave and they don't have to sit out a year, so why should a player? And yet I I remember thinking this is going to be like when free agency came into major league baseball and there was just a, uh, a crazy period of guys changing teams because they hadn't had the ability to do that before. So that tended to settle down uh, with a little passage of time. And I suspect this will, will do the same. And maybe the numbers of, of transfers won't be as great as they have been in these first two years. Name, image, and likeness obviously is a, a huge change as well, where, which maybe could help a program like Kentucky where a guy doesn't feel as much pressure to, to rush out uh, to uh, the pros until maybe he's ready if he can stay and make some money in college. You know, if he's maybe looking at playing in the G League anyway, uh, why not come back and maybe play a second year in college and try to develop a little bit more? Um, I think the NCAA uh, did the the coaches and the programs a great disservice by not being uh, out in front of this and, and understanding what was coming and being able to, you know, set it up in such a way that it would have had a little more structure perhaps to it and uh, might have made it a little less, you know, the wild, wild west than it looks right now. But uh, they did not have that forethought. And so the... Uh, Programs are paying the price for that in terms of it's just if fans, I remember thinking at the time when the transfer thing came in, if fans were disenchanted with the one and done thing, this is going to be like that or or more because there's just going to be so much roster turnover from year to year. Yes. LSU, case in point. Yeah, everybody. St. Peter's, you know, congratulations and goodbye. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And three three other key players than the – move on to somewhere else. So it's, again, it's a lot like, I think, you know, baseball free agency in the seventies when the uh, restrictions were taken off and it just uh, exploded all the, the player movement. And then, you know, with passage of time, it, uh, it settled down some, so maybe it'll be the same for this. We'll see. Well, I'm going to make one prediction for next year. And I'm going to ask you, Tom Leach, if you're willing to uh, come on board with that or make a prediction of your own, my prediction Cats fans for next year. Oscar returns. We win number nine. Fans forgive Cal for whatever they're mad about. And Cats fans live happily ever after. 
Tom well, Wh- one thing I can guarantee you about anybody that's mad at Cal would forgive him if he wins number nine. That's that's uh, that's about a hundred percent guarantee. Uh, I think Oscar. My guess is Oscar will be back as well. But uh, I can't. I'll, I'll hope you're correct about number nine. It's just those things are hard to win. Um, you know, we saw Bill Self win his second one this year, and he's been in a position to to win the second one several times. Um, so it takes good good talent and well as as well as some some good fortune. So uh, I hope you're right. Yes, sir. Well, that's good. Hope, hope is a lovely thing. Well, I'm so thankful, Tom Leach, that you were uh, willing to share time with me. Uh, I got to tell you that ever since I was a little kid, uh, my dream job, and this is true, anyone who's known me uh, would tell you this, my dream job has to uh, has been to be the commentator for the radio broadcasts of Kentucky basketball. I listened to Kay Wood, and I thought he's the the awesomest, and so. If you want to tell your partner, Mike Pratt, if he ever wants a break, uh, I am ready to fill in any time. I recently met uh, Mark Witt, happened to be sitting next to him at a restaurant, and he shared his info with me, so I let him know that's the job I want. I'm going to be in touch with him. So I love you guys, and I appreciate you guys, and if you, you want to bring me in to call a game, I'm right there. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll uh, put your name on the list. Yes, sir. Uh, it, it's I was like you. I mean, I, it's the job I always wanted. I'm very blessed to uh, have have it uh, have worked out for for it to happen. It's been as as much fun as I uh, always thought it would be. And um, you know, however many more years are left to do it, I, I think it's going to remain just as much fun. We uh, we have a good time. I love doing the games. So you know, even in it. After a bad year, football or basketball, they'll say, well, I bet you're glad that's over. And I never am because I love doing the games. And so even in the uh, – in the obviously, the good years are better, but uh, even in the bad years, you're still getting to do, do uh, games on the radio. That's great. Yes, and we'll keep listening and keep cheering on the Cats. Thank you so much. Uh, God bless you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.